Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 9th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. Pharmaceutical company Malincrod, previously known as QuestCore Pharmaceuticals, has agreed to pay $15.4 million to resolve claims that Questor paid illegal kickbacks to doctors. The kickbacks were in the form of lavish dinners and entertainment and used to induce prescriptions of the company's drug HP Acthar Gel for the treatment of complications from multiple sclerosis. The federal anti-kickback statute prohibits a pharmaceutical company from offering or paying directly or indirectly any remuneration with the intent to induce a healthcare provider to prescribe a drug reimbursed by Medicare. This prohibition extends to such practices as whining and dining doctors to induce them to write Medicare prescriptions of a company's products. The government alleges that 12 Quest Core sales representatives marketing Akthar provided illegal remuneration to healthcare providers in the form of these lavish meals and entertainment expenses. The allegations relevant to this settlement were originally alleged in two civil cases filed under the whistleblower or key Tom provisions of the Federal False Claims Act. The act permits private parties to sue for fraud on behalf of the United States and to share in any recovery. In this case, the whistleblowers will receive nearly $3 million of the settlement. Criminal charges have been filed against 30 Bay Area defendants, including the Bay Area's largest home health care agency, in a Patients for Cash kickback scheme. At the center of the scheme are Amity Home Healthcare, the largest home health care provider in the San Francisco Bay Area, and Advent Care Incorporated, a provider of hospice care. Prosecutors say the defendants participated in the scheme whereby Amity paid kickbacks to marketers, doctors, and other medical professionals in exchange for the certification or referral of patients for home health or hospice services. Also charged are 28 people including doctors, nurses, marketers, a social worker, and additional employees of Amity. According to the complaints, every single defendant charged was recorded by law enforcement officers, either offering or accepting or approving illegal payments for patient referrals. It is a federal crime for any person to knowingly solicit, offer, or pay a kickback, bribe, or rebate for furnishing services under a federal health care program. Amity and the other defendants often disguise the kickbacks as payroll, phony medical directorships, and at other times as entertainment reimbursements, gifts, or donations. Several of the defendants are doctors and other healthcare professionals who allegedly receive bribes in exchange for making referrals to Amity and Advent and other home healthcare agencies. <clears throat> Amity allegedly compensated these professionals in cash for each 
patient referral and for making introductions to physicians, case managers, or other healthcare professionals who could refer patients. Some of the defendants are described as marketers who received cash and gifts, such as tickets to Warrior Games in exchange for their patient referrals. Marketers had clients that consisted of case managers at hospitals, social workers at skilled nursing facilities, doctors, and office staff at doctors' offices. The Amity CEO allegedly instructed marketers to take clients out to elaborate meals, sporting events, and purchase gifts for individuals willing to provide Amity with patients. The names and identification information on the specific individuals involved in this case are listed on the Justice Department website announcement. And in regulatory news, back in 2015, Governor Jerry Brown signed a new law which directed the DWC to adopt an evidence-based drug formulary in the California workers' compensation system. In 2017, the DWC adopted the new drug formulary linked to the California Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule. The drug formulary was designed to reduce frictional costs mostly from UR and independent medical review and restrict inappropriate prescribing, especially that related to opioids, as well as ensuring medically necessary and timely medications for injured workers. The drug formulary includes a drug list of about 300 drug ingredients that are assigned a status of either exempt or not exempt from prospective UR. All opioids and compounded drugs are non-exempt from prescriptive UR. Additionally, certain non-exempt drugs can be prescribed without prospective UR if they meet the requirement of special fill or perioperative fill policies. Drugs not listed on the MTUS drug list must obtain authorization through prospective UR prior to dispensing. Even before the implementation of the drug formulary, pharmaceutical costs in California had been declining sharply. Key drivers of the decrease include Senate Bill 863 reforms related to IMR and spinal surgeries, changes in the federal government upper limit pricing levels, anti-fraud efforts, and the public reaction to the national opioid epidemic. While there was an even more significant drop in the utilization and cost of pharmaceuticals in 2018, it was not immediately clear how much of the decline was due to the new formulary and how much was due to the continuation of the factors driving the prior year costs decreases. The WCARB just reviewed the impact of the new drug formulary on prescribing patterns and pharmaceutical costs based on pharmaceutical transaction information through the first year of implementation. The WCIRB concluded that while a number of pharmaceutical components had been declining prior to the implementation of the formulary, the decline accelerated during 2018 
suggestive of the effects of the drug formulary. AB5 is expected to eventually pass the California legislature and result in an estimated 2 million workers being transformed from independent contractors to employees. The transformation would increase those covered by workers' compensation and the industry activity would increase accordingly. The proposed law is the legislature's response to the California Supreme Court's 2018 opinion in Dynamex v. Superior Court. In Dynamex, the court changed the state's long-standing law governing workers' classification and exposed thousands of California businesses to potential retroactive liability. AB 5 previously came before the Senate Appropriations Committee on August 12 this year, when the committee temporarily put the bill on hold. But the committee has now voted the bill to the Senate floor, and the bill must be passed before the legislative session ends on September 13. Due to this time pressure, legislators will have to choose between advancing the revised bill as it is or facing potential criticism for failing to pass any legislative fix to the Dynamex case during the current session. In face of growing uncertainty, some employers are eyeing a possible 2020 ballot initiative to advance an AB5 countermeasure. For now, employers across the country are anxiously awaiting publication of the amended version of AB5, which is expected to be published after Labor Day. The Division of Workers' Compensation has updated the evidence-based treatment guidelines of the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule. The updates are effective for medical treatment services after October 7. The changes incorporate the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine's most recent hip and groin disorders dated April 24, 2019 guideline. The administrative order contains hyperlinks to the updated ACOM guidelines. Healthcare providers in the California workers' compensation system may access the MTUS guidelines and MTUS drug list at no cost by registering for an account. The DWC has also posted an adjustment to the inpatient hospital section of the official medical fee schedule. These changes conform to changes in the 2020 Medicare payment system as required by Labor Code 5307.1. The effective date of these new changes is November 1. Further information can be found on the DWC website's OMFS page. And in other news, the Trump administration is awarding nearly $2 billion in new funding to states and local governments to help fight the opioid crisis. The Health and Human Services Secretary said the grants come from money secured from Congress last year. The Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration is awarding $932 million to every state and some U.S. territories 
to help provide treatment and recovery services. Separately, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is getting $900 million under a new three-year program to help state and local governments better track overdose data. 47 states and the District of Columbia are among jurisdictions sharing $301 million in the first year. In announcing the move, officials claim the administration is trying to interject the word fentanyl into the everyday lexicon as part of their efforts to increase awareness. Central to the effort to stop the flood of fentanyl and other illicit drugs is unprecedented support for law enforcement and their interdiction efforts. Officials pointed out that the DHS seizures of fentanyl last year, which totaled an eight an equivalent to 1.2 billion lethal doses. Just weeks ago, the White House released a series of private sector advisories. The four advisories aim to stem the production and sale of illicit fentanyl, fentanyl analogs, and other synthetic opioids. The advisories focus on the manufacturing, marketing, movement, and money of illicit fentanyl. In March last year, the Interior Department created a tribal task force aimed to specifically combat the crisis on tribal lands. Since then, the department has re- arrested over 422 individuals and the seizure of 4,000 pounds of illegal drugs worth $12 million on the street, including over 35,000 fentanyl pills. The epidemic of pain relievers should now be referred to as an opioid and fentanyl crisis. The Sackler family grew into one of the nation's wealthiest dynasties through sales of the widely abused painkiller OxyContin. And the family could emerge from a legal settlement under negotiation with its personal fortunes largely intact. Under a novel settlement plan, the family will relinquish control of their company, Purdue Pharma, and resurrect it as a trust whose main purpose would be to combat the opioid epidemic. The Sacklers could raise most, if not all, of their personal share of the $10 billion to $12 billion agreement by selling their international drug conglomerate, Munda Pharma, Their proposed settlement, built on the projected value of drugs not yet on the market, offers gains for both sides if the company and more than 2,000 cities, counties, states, and others that have sued Purdue and the family can craft a deal. Under the proposed settlement offer, Purdue would produce millions of doses of badly needed anti-addiction medication and overdose antidotes for the public free of charge. The company would also contribute hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and insurance policies that could be worth even more. Much of the benefit to the public would be funded by the continued sales of the powerful narcotic OxyContin. Purdue Pharma would go into bankruptcy and the Sacklers would be out of the drug business. They would be required to contribute $3 billion of their personal wealth and possibly even more depending on the sale price of Muti Pharma, their international drug companies. But 
they would still retain much of their wealth. In fact, they might be able to keep billions of dollars that state attorneys general allege they pulled out of their company. And some who are close to the negotiations say no one is going to be happy with that. The Rene Public Policy Group works throughout California advising and advocating for public agencies, nonprofit entities, individuals, and private entities. Former San Francisco City Attorney Louise Rene leads the organization as chairperson. The League of California Cities is an association of California city officials who work together to enhance their knowledge and skills, exchange information, and combine resources to influence poly decisions that affect the cities. It has retained Rennie Public Policy Group to advocate on issues related to workers' compensation, public sector pensions, and other policy areas critical to cities. The Director of Government Affairs will lead efforts on this project, working directly with the League. Rennie Public Policy Group is a full-service lobbying and consulting firm that provides support to public agencies and companies that align with the interests of public agencies. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <music>